Well, I wonder if you could use a bit more positivity in your life. How are you feeling at this point in the year? It's a beautiful sunny day today, but it hasn't been such delightful weather. Uh, and then there's COVID, obviously. Um, cases in New Zealand pretty much as high as they've ever been. And there's monkeypox, apparently. There's a new pandemic. Um, no idea how dangerous that is, but I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, then there's inflation, a cost of living crisis, the climate crisis, which is kind of always the case in Wellington, but you know, a bit more global as well. Um, growing international tension, the threat of possibly a third world war. I don't know if you've heard that in the media. And then there's our own lives, right? The stress at work, those interpersonal relationships that aren't going so well, or the pressure to stay in a job that you're just not enjoying, or the constant grind of the next project and deadlines that are too close, or maybe the home life tension at home, whether it's with flatmates or family members, or maybe you're alone at home. Maybe there's loneliness. Maybe there's mental illness or chronic illness or, or frustratingly mild illness that means your snotty kids have to stay home from school even though they're not really sick. Could you use a bit more positivity in your life? Well, this part of God's word, it's really ministered to me this week. And it's an encouraging word to all of us. I've been feeling a bit discouraged lately, a bit weary, inadequate, a bit despondent and unmotivated. And I don't think I'm alone in these feelings. We all feel this way sometimes, don't you? And so if, like me, you could use a bit more positivity, some encouragement, something to lift your spirits that's a bit deeper than a cat video. Let's have a look at this part of God's Word together. Because if there's anyone who ought to be feeling discouraged at this point in their life, it's Paul, right? Paul, the, the missionary who was traveling all around Europe preaching the good news, and now he's preaching the good news, and now he's stuck in a Roman jail. He's in prison. He's disconnected from the people he loves. And he's likely facing an execution at the hands of the Romans. And yet you can't shake this guy's positivity, right? Did you notice it as we read through the passage? He's so filled with joy and thankfulness as he writes to this church in Philippi. Have a look with me at verse 3 for an example. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's so effusive, isn't he? Wouldn't it be love, lovely to have someone who prays like this for you, who's just so thankful whenever he remembers you? Such affection that he has for them. You see it in verse 7. He has them in his heart. And then verse 8, he, he longs for all of them with the affection of Christ Jesus. So why is this? Is Paul just being dramatic for effect? Is this just like a cultural custom? At the start of your letters, you start with all the positive things to kind of butter people up for the rest of your letter. Well, as effusive as he is, he's also sincere. Have a look in verse 8. He says, God is my witness. How I long with for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. 
See, he's, he's solemnly swearing in the presence of God that this is how he feels. These aren't superficial niceties. No, there's a profound depth to Paul's affection for the Philippians. And he tells us why. See, his affection for this church is profound because it's divine. It's profound because it's an affection grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about a, a fake, superficial, happy, happy, joy, joy, I've got Jesus, so I can't be sad because nothing bad's going to happen. And if something bad happens, well, that's just God teaching me something. I wonder if you've come across that kind of Christianity. Well, you always have to be positive because otherwise you're being unfaithful. The pressure to put on a brave face every Sunday morning, that chirpy smile, that having it all together. No, what we see here is much deeper than that. It's not just something to lift our spirits for a day or even a week. No, this is a whole mindset to live your life by. A gospel-shaped perspective that fills us with a profound and lasting joy in all circumstances and a sincere and deep affection and love for one another. See, Paul has two great gospel-shaped encouragements for the Philippians and for us this morning. You can see them both in verse 5 and 6, and then he unpacks both of them in the rest of the passage. So have a read with me from verse 5. Well, let's go from verse 3 again. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see why Paul prays with such thankfulness and joy? Well, verse 5 the first one, it's because of their partnership in the gospel. And verse 6, it's because he's confident that God is at work in them. So let's take them one by one. Firstly, the joy of gospel partnership. You'll see it in your outlines if you want to follow along. Paul prays with joy, again, verse 5, because the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. So what is this? What is a partnership in the gospel? Well, a partnership is a relationship with a common goal, right? Partners work together as a team to, to try and achieve something. And, and there's nothing more rewarding, nothing that draws people together than a good partnership, right? Striving to a goal together, persisting through great trials to the destination. It, it makes me think of the com camaraderie of, of soldiers fighting alongside one another against a common enemy. Or it also makes me think of Frodo and Sam from the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out there. They've got this one goal. And against all odds, they've got this quest to go through the perils of Mordor and destroy the ring that was threatening to overthrow all the goodness in the world. It's a great partnership, isn't it? But this is a partnership in the gospel. So what about the gospel? What is, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel just means good news. The gospel is the good news of the free gift. In other words, the grace. That's what we mean by grace, a free gift given to us. 
so that we can have peace with God by believing in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we can be transformed from being God's enemies to becoming God's holy people. Now, Paul's letters are drenched in the good news. This was his life goal. This is his mission, defending and proclaiming the good news, the gospel. It's even right there at the start of the letter, isn't it? He's writing to God's holy people in Philippi. In verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often skip over this part, right? But it's more than just a greeting. It's a greeting reserved for Christians. This letter is addressed to God's holy people in Christ Jesus, and it's a reminder of the gospel, the good news of peace with God by the grace of Christ. So putting it together, what is a partnership in the gospel? Well, it means those who've received this good news of peace with God, trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ, well, it means we share in this amazing common purpose, a common goal. In fact, the greatest common goal that there is to defend and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see more and more people come to hear and believe the good news. To receive this grace of Jesus and have peace with God before it's too late, before the day of Christ. Did you see that language there? The day of Christ Jesus. It's the day when Jesus is going to return and judge the world and then usher in a new age. That's the future that awaits us. And in the meantime, we strive to proclaim and defend the gospel. And so as we do this together, we stand side by side in the fight for the good news. Because in many ways, it is a war we're fighting, isn't it? It's not a battle fought, with, fought against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil and enemies of truth and goodness. It's not a battle to win territory, but a battle to win hearts and souls. And it's not a battle fought with weapons and violence, but a battle fought with words of truth and love. Words that some will try and twist to serve their own ends, and others will try and silence. Words that need to be spoken gently and from a life that practices what they're preaching, but will often be met with hatred and opposition, no matter how gently and lovingly they're shared. And when you fight alongside your brothers and sisters in defending and proclaiming the gospel, well, you form a deep, a deep bond. And we can see here that, that bond between Paul and the Philippians, can't we? Even though they're separated by distance, they're still partners in the gospel. Did you notice that in verse 5? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, until now when I'm in this jail in Rome and you're over there, this partnership continues even as Paul's in jail. And he unpacks it a bit more in verse 7. Have a look with me in verse 7. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. 
See, even though Paul is miles away in a Roman jail, even though he longs for them, it's the sense in which he, he, he longs for them to be there with him, they already are there. They're there in his heart, spurring him on, sharing in this grace. And I think practically they're helping him too, in tangible ways. I think part of what Paul's referring to here when he says, all of you share in God's grace with me, is their financial support of Paul's ministry. They're sending him money to support him even in prison as he proclaims the gospel. We'll get to that in chapter 4 in a few weeks' time where he specifically thanks them for their financial support. So I wonder, is this how we think of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as gospel partners, as soldiers fighting alongside of us? I wonder if perhaps it's more like we think of the people at City on a Hill as generally decent people who for the most part share my worldview and we can get along most of the time and we can have some interesting discussions about interesting things. But sometimes it it just doesn't really go any deeper than that. But when you're captivated by the gospel, the reality of the day of Christ approaching It drives you. It drives you to do whatever you can to to work together as partners in the gospel, to give financially, to pray, to send, to go, in order to see more and more people come to know and believe the good news of Jesus. Do you see the profound joy of embracing our gospel partnership? Imagine the joy of of seeing those you shared the gospel with on the day of Christ. Imagine the joy of meeting those you prayed for, who were persecuted and even martyred for the name of Christ. Imagine the joy of seeing those you helped or, or those who helped you through a time of doubt or great suffering. Together you endured through great opposition to stand on that last day in Christ when the saints go marching in I want to be in that number this is the future that awaits us and it's the partnership we share now striving for that goal isn't that something worth living for isn't that something to get you out of bed on a Sunday morning isn't it even worth dying for And just as the partnership extended between Paul and the Philippians from the first day until now when he's writing this letter, so too has the work of God in their lives. It began then and it's continuing into the future. And that's our second encouragement here, which is if you're a follower of Jesus, God is at work in you. Look at verse 6 again. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul witnessed God beginning his work in the Philippians as they heard and responded to the gospel. You can read about it um, in Acts 16. Um, Now, if you haven't read the book of Acts, can I just encourage you this week, sit down and read the whole book of Acts. It's an amazing read. It's kind of like the um, origin story of the church. 
It's what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Uh, And it'll give you a great background to Paul and who Paul is and the background to these letters. Um, So in Acts 16, we read that Paul starts this church in Philippi by sharing the gospel with a lady called Lydia at a river, just beside a river. And, And a few days later, Paul and his friends end up in jail for casting out a demon from this woman who could, a slave girl who could tell the future by this demon. And then after this miraculous escape, uh, the jailer who was about to commit suicide is converted and his whole family is converted. And there begins the Philippian church. Not long after, Paul and his companions move on to start new churches, but God has begun his work in these people. And now years later, as he writes this letter, Paul's in jail again. This time it's in Rome and there's no miraculous escape. He's stuck there. But he's so encouraged by his memory of the Philippians and it's because he's confident that God is still at work in them. Having seen them believe the gospel, having seen it transform their lives, Paul recognizes this as the work of God. It wasn't their brilliance or even Paul's brilliance in preaching the gospel that helped them figure God out, that figured the gospel out. It was God at work in them. See, this might be a a humbling thing for us to hear or to come to terms with, but our belief in the grace of God It's not something we do in our own strength. Our belief in the grace of God is the work of God. It's the grace of God that gives us that belief. We receive his grace by his grace. And so Paul, seeing God's grace at work in them from the beginning, he's confident that God will continue that work until its completion on the day of Christ. See, Jesus is working to make sure that when he returns to judge the earth on that day of Christ, his people will be found in him. As Jesus says in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, isn't this such an encouragement? To us, are you weary and heavy laden? Are you tired of struggling against the same old sins? Or are you plagued with doubts that won't go away? Does God feel distant? Know that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now, this doesn't mean we sit back and let God do all the work. No, as we will find out in the next chapter, uh, in 2 verse 12, we're to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we do so not in our own strength, because he is at work in us. The very next verse, 2.13, says, It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So be encouraged. Don't fret. Don't give up. If God has begun his work in you, he won't let you go. 
No one, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. But what does it look like? What does it look like for God to be at work in you? Well, we see what God's word looks like, at work looks like, in what Paul prays for the Philippians at the end of our passage. Have a look with me there from verse 9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul here is asking for God to continue his work in the Philippians, to continue the work that he began when they first heard and believed the good news. And it's a beautiful picture of true humanity, isn't it? You could build your whole life on this prayer. Uh, So let's have a close look at it, shall we? Um, Broadly speaking, there are three characteristics and three results. This is God's work in his holy people. The first characteristic is love. It's all about love. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Love for God and love for people. It's that greatest commandment. And to and put it simply, to love is to seek someone's good. Right? That's the first characteristic, love. And the second characteristic is that this love is abounding. Paul asked God that he would make our love abound more and more. That would be like a fountain overflowing, oozing with love. Following our crucified Lord who gave his life for the good of others. That's the kind of love we're called to. An abounding love, an overflowing love. And the third characteristic is that this love is abounding in knowledge. This love is not some ethereal, abstract feeling of happiness and warmth. No, it's grounded in truth. Paul prays that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best. See, true love is not just from the heart, but informed by the head, by truth and wisdom. See, how can you seek someone's good unless you know what goodness is? unless you know what is best. This is the work of God in his holy people. It's the path to Christian maturity. Not love instead of knowledge. And not knowledge that puffs up so that we can look down on those ignorant people who don't have as good theology as us. No, love abounding in knowledge. Love grounded in truth. Love expressed in deep, God-shaped wisdom. Love abounding in knowledge. This is the kind of work that God is doing in your life. 
And it's what we should strive to grow in ourselves and to pray for others as Paul prays for the Philippians, as his partners in the gospel. So that's the three characteristics of this growth. And then the result is threefold again, which we see here in this so that phrase in verse 10, 11. Let's, let's read again from verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's the result of our love abounding in knowledge? Well, firstly, it leads to a pure and blameless life. In other words, a life that avoids sin, a life that puts sin to death and flees immorality, putting off the desires of our flesh and fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not that we'll reach perfection until the day of Christ, but that we strive for purity and God is working in us. Secondly, it doesn't just result in the avoidance of sin. It fills us with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, we'll produce a good harvest of love toward others, of God-honoring work, of active service of God and one another. And finally, the third result, and the end result of it all, is the glory and praise of God. See, the most encouraging thing in all of this, more encouraging than being gospel partners, more encouraging than the work of God in us from the beginning, the most encouraging thing that overarches it all is that all this is from God and for His glory. In other words, this one true God, the most perfect and beautiful and good being in the universe, He's chosen little old you and me to be part of his plans and purposes to display his glory and goodness to the universe. There is no higher calling for a human. This is why we were created. See, God made humans different from all the creatures, different from anything in the universe to uniquely bear his image, to be little lights shining in the dark sky, to be little signposts pointing to God, saying this is what God is like. And so when we reject God and ignore Him and live for ourselves without Him, we stop doing what we were made to do. We stop pointing to God and instead we point to ourselves, look at me, I'm a sign. It's meaningless. It's pathetic a sign that points to itself. But when we have peace with God through the gospel of grace, when we're reconciled to God, and when he continues to work in us so that we live gospel-shaped lives, abounding in love, in knowledge, in purity, in righteousness, well, God is restoring us to do what we were made to do, to display God's love, his goodness, his holiness to the universe. So as we close, can I ask you, will you live 
for the glory and praise of God? Have you been captivated by the gospel of grace? If you have, then give thanks with me for the partnership in the gospel we share with our fellow brothers and sisters here and around the world as we wage war against sin and evil with Jesus leading us ever on until that day when he will return and put everything right. God has begun his work in you and he will carry it on to completion, growing your love until it abounds, deepening your love and depth of insight, purifying you and filling you with the fruits of righteousness. And he's doing it all for the greatest purpose in the universe, the glory of God our maker. How about we ask him to continue that work until the day of Christ? Let's pray. Awesome God, you are holy. You are Lord God Almighty. And yet you have chosen us, mere humans, to display your glory to the universe. We ask that we might live lives that honor you, we ask that you would do this work in us. And Lord, if there are any here today who have not yet had you at work in their lives, who have not yet believed in the good news of Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would begin to do that good work in them. Have mercy on them, Lord. Pour out your grace on them. We pray that as partners in this gospel, we might reach out to those who don't know you, that we might fund those who are reaching out around the world and around our city, that we might take great joy in the partnership you've given us, and that we would continue to grow in love, abounding in knowledge. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his praise and his glory. Amen.